Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. On the show with me today is Marcus Kutsona. He's a five-time author, including his first instructional tennis book, which you may be familiar with, is called Occam's Racket. And he's also written several other works of tennis fiction and also thrillers and and other literary uh, fiction as well. So a very experienced author and coach. He's spent a ton of time on the court working with students. He's a teaching professional and a contributing author to Inside Tennis. And he's also a member of the Wilson Advisory Staff. And today we're going to be discussing his new book called Tennis Lessons, Filling the Gaps in Your Game. Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Ian, thank you very much. It is great to be here and great to have the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, you and I were just discussing before we, we started recording here how the tennis world on one hand is huge, but on the other hand feels very small kind of when it gets into the, the media side of things. And for that reason, I'm always excited to check out a new book that's instructionally focused because tennis instruction is just always been the passion of of my life so i love hearing other people's perspectives and a project like this is a huge undertaking so i guess that's my first question for you marcus is what was the itch that you needed to scratch what was it that that really motivated you to head to the computer again and start writing another book about uh, about tennis well it's probably a couple things um one was um, the San Francisco 49ers. And um, to explain um, just a couple of statistics, in 2010, the 49ers had a record of six wins and 10 losses with basically the same roster that they had in 2010. In 2011, they got the coach Jim Harbaugh. And in 2011, with, again, basically the same pieces in place, they had a record of 13 wins and three losses, and a couple years later went to the Super Bowl. So. It has fascinated me in sports in general um, and in life, too, about how it is possible to take the same pieces that you already have of something, a skill, and by rearranging them or reemphasizing them to do a whole lot better with the same things you already have. Hmm. And so that was the first reason. The second reason then plays into some long experience, as you alluded to, on the tennis court with actual students who do find rallying. They do find in lessons in most cases. And then weekly, um, I hear from people and I say, so how did your match go? Well, you know, um, it just didn't go as well as it, it does out on the court here. And I, I wasn't able to get past this person that I thought I should have beaten. And so I need some insight into what that is. And it began to occur to me that what a lot of players want is sort of an easy technical answer to why they're not winning, which is often sort of expressed in, I need a better forehand, or I need to hit my serve harder. Sure. Both things, of course, are great. I, I love stroke virtuosity. I, I, I live by trying to teach stroke excellence. But in a lot of cases, I'm thinking that may not exactly be the thing that is holding you back. I, I have uh, one student who's a, a good 4-0 player, and he does very well in practice points we play, and when he gets on the court, he says he has a problem at a certain time in the point. He begins to lose points after a certain amount of shots in a rally. And what it became apparent in his case was 
that he needed to keep a little bit more flexibility in his legs and a little bit more knee bend longer in the rally to make the fifth or sixth or seventh shot that was going to actually win him the point. He had the strokes. He even had the stamina. But one small thing was what was holding him back from really doing as well as he could in match play. And so I wrote this book as a way to look at a number of different types of gaps that people potentially have in their match games and to give them some techniques and some solutions for filling those. Now, one other thing I should probably say about the book is that, and I say this in the beginning of the book, if you are a person who wants to go out and just rally with friends and maybe sometimes play practice points and really want to just look good out there and have beautiful strokes, then you may not need to worry about filling gaps. But for the vaster amount of players who want to succeed at match tennis and probably also succeed at league and or tournament tennis, it's often your conditioning or your diet or something besides your strokes that's actually keeping you from the victories that you think you should be having. Why Why is it, and I totally agree with you, I think your average tennis player is fixated and infatuated with technical execution they want racket head speed they they want spin <laughs> they want power what what is the allure of those technically founded things do you think well Ian, you know i think um you know so much of what people get is an impression of how to play tennis i think they get from tv tennis sure which again is all good i mean when you're watching a sport and trying to do well at it, you want to see the, the men and women who are doing it at the highest possible level. But I think a lot of times what people see from those great players is what I need and what will put me over the top and make me more like them is if I hit the ball harder, if my serve goes harder, my forehand has even more spin than it does now, which um, I think is a very, as you say, a, sort of alluring uh, call. It's like, yeah, that, that could make the difference. That, that really could do it for me. And so I think that we all get infatuated with having our game look a certain way that we have in our mind and maybe overlook a, a sort of broader view of our game that might include some other things that would actually make more difference. Gotcha. So you mentioned fitness, you, you mentioned nutrition. What other, uh, can you give us like a 30,000 foot view? What other gaps are there that you think are the primary ones that you see on your courts over and over? Um, well, um, primary gaps. So I think one of the things, um, movement is obviously one, um, which is related to fitness, of course, but just deciding that you're going to move and then getting some instruction and how to move. Mm. I think also figuring out um, a strategy that works within the strokes that you have, within your abilities, that's going to be something that you can take into a game and have a plan when you go in. Um, I quote in the book um, the Stanford player and former Stanford coach, John Whitlinger, who said to one of his players one day on the court, when you go out on the court, I want you to have a plan. I don't care what kind of plan it is. I just want you to have one. <laughs> And um, I think for many players, just the fact of having an approach when they go in the match could help them immeasurably. Um, so those things. I also think having some way to deal with the kind of oddball shots that you get in a lot of match situations, because you have players with very pure strokes who will get into a situation where they get an odd spin or bounce or something like that, and they end up just not really having an approach or technique that can help them get out of that kind of situation. Um, and I think the other thing that, that I see a lot on the court is 
players not committing fully to strokes, which is they actually have the stroke. They get in a situation, and then they begin to doubt what they're doing somewhere in the midst of doing it and sabotage or sort of short-circuit their stroke because they begin to doubt it in the middle. And one of the points I make in the book is that it's been my observation that the playing pros, the people we are watching as the exemplars of the best in the sport, even if they're going to hit the most ill-advised stroke in the history of pro tennis, <laughs> they go at it typically with 100% commitment and succeed or fail based on putting their all into that stroke. And I think for a lot of recreational and league players, that's probably advice that could be very helpful. And it also takes a lot of the active thinking out of playing and puts you a little bit more in touch with the intuitive side of the game, which I think is also really powerful. Awesome. Yeah, I totally you know, agree. Yeah, um, go ahead. I was just going to say probably, you know, a couple other not so minor things are um, having the right equipment for yourself to, to really spend some time um, finding the right racket, the right, any other part of um, your whole kit that you're going to bring on the court. I see a lot of people who seem to be swayed by rackets that they see other people or pros using and that really aren't right for them. And while it is true that no racket's going to make you better than you are, a racket can hold you back from being as good as you are. So um, I think that's a, a really important part of it too. And then um, I also talk a little bit in the book about the whole idea of mindset, which is how do you view your own ability to learn versus your natural talent? I mean, are you somebody who thinks that you have an unlimited capacity to learn? Or are you someone who's going to hold yourself back by saying, you know, I'm not really that great an athlete. I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. And I, I guess I've gone as far as I can go. So those would be some of the areas that seem like they could be shored up a little or a lot for many players to help them. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of essential elements there that we'll definitely circle back to and, and touch on. The, the first I'd really like to dive into a little bit deeper here uh, is a quote from, I think the first or second chapter of the book, you wrote, to advance to 4.0 and beyond, you must hit the ball correctly. What, what does correctly mean to you and why, why that 4.0 level? Why is there that uh, gap there for so many players who get stuck at 3.5 and, and they just can't get their skills beyond that point? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a really good um, question about that whole sort of weird ceiling that I think a lot of people run into. And um, you may have run into this in your instruction, too. I assume you have. Um, that what I have come to believe over the years is that you can get to a certain point having strokes that sort of work. Mm -hmm. But to get beyond that point, you need strokes that really work for reasons. And um, I talk in the book about the sort of um, facetiously phrased concept of numbing sameness. The idea that if you were to take um, some video footage of your strokes at any point in a match, and assuming you're not way stretched out on the side of the court and just flailing at something because you're just barely getting there, but in the general run of strokes that your tempo and the way you're hitting the ball would look basically the same in any frames that you take in that match. So what you're trying to do is develop a technique that works for you consistently at a pace that you can play competitive matches with. You're getting the ball in, let's say 70 or 75% of the time with these strokes and you have integrated your technique well enough and in that so that you can 
make those strokes work over and over again in a lot of situations. So by correct, I mean a stroke that in context can work for you um, if you have to hit a low ball or a high ball or a faster ball or a spin ball, but something that can create a consistent response. And I, again, I think the people who get to 4.0 and beyond are the people who develop strokes that are numbingly the same, but also flexible and adaptable. Mm-hmm. So they, they have a technique that they're comfortable with. They're hitting at a pace that's appropriate for them, but they're able to use the strokes in all sorts of different situations. And that can take their game to a level beyond sort of that, that three, five idling place that some people get to. That's a, a really interesting combination of, of scales. It almost sounds like a kind of the, that they would be at odds. The, the concept of being able to be extremely repeatable and, similar from rep to rep to rep and yet also very adaptable and flexible to different situations from from your perspective as a, a coach and a, a trainer on the courts how do you how do you de- develop those two things is it are those things that you develop separately or in in harmony in, in other words do they go back to the the same technical elements or are those two different skills that you you train that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, and you're right. It does apparently sound contradictory, and I think it's sort of twin tracks that you're trying to bring together and combine. I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of place in tennis instruction at almost every level in making sure that you're hitting the strokes technically correct, say, in sort of a dead ball or a rally setting. Mm-hmm. Um, remember reading some years ago Nick Boateri saying about Agassi said, when I work with Andre, after some practice sessions, I just get up to the net and hit him 54 hands just to make sure that he was hitting those 54 hands correctly. So I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. Um, that, is, that is probably wisdom for all of us. And I think that what you want to do to develop the kinds of skills that I'm envisioning that will take you to the, the level beyond where you might have stalled, you want to work on your technique and then put yourself in, say, practice or drill situations where you're having to confront a lot of different types of shots and then seeing how you can adapt that technique that is repeatable to those particular instances and getting feedback from your coach or your instructor to tell you how to handle those things so that you also have repeatable variations on your repeatable core strokes. And then eventually, um, ideally, you're, you're sort of just combining that all into one sort of practice matrix, if you will, but probably realistically from time to time. And I even see this with some of the four five and five Oh players that I deal with. You need to sometimes go back to just working on technique of stroke. Like what's my wrist position here? Where's my fall? If you're going, how tight is my grip pressure here? What's my weight doing? So you're probably never too far from those things, no matter how far along you get. But I think what you get as you go farther with your basic technique is the ability to find more ways to adapt it. And, and a lot of that, of course, also comes from just seeing lots and lots and lots of tennis balls coming at you because your brain is this fantastic tennis database, this tennis computer, and tennis is about micro-adjustments a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes it's about macro-adjustments that are obvious, but so much of it is just the subtle variations in ball balance and speed and spin that you can't learn exactly by being told you have to just have a lot of experience seeing a lot of tennis balls come at you in order to make those adaptations and so obviously a big part of all this 
two that I'm suggesting now is that you need to practice. And that's a, a perfect segue into a, a concept that I was really curious and interested to, to read your writing on. And you, you make the, the statement a few times in the book that tennis is not intuitive or natural. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, um, I've been teaching for a long time, a number of decades, and I can truly say that I don't think I've ever seen a natural or intuitive tennis player. If you, for instance, give somebody a tennis racket, show them the serve motion, they most likely will not try to do that motion out of a continental grip. Mm -hmm. If you throw a ball to the forehand side of their body and ask them to hit it just intuitively, they can probably do that with some amount of facility. But if you ask them to do that on the backhand side of their body, that's going to be a very unnatural motion. And one of the reasons I think that is that in regular, normal life that doesn't involve the tennis court, if you're going to say, I don't know, slap a bug or do something like that, you would use the forehand motion. There's, there's hardly anything in life that I've been able to come up with where you're actually using the back of your hand to do something like that. So, so that alone is unintuitive. I think also for many players, even some pretty advanced players, the whole notion of follow-through is abstract and hard to get onto at first. I mean, the idea that you're making the stroke and about halfway through you're, you have impact with the ball, but then what you're doing with your arm past that impact uh, up out in front of you, up over your shoulder or whatever, that that makes a difference. I think that um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard one to grasp right away. I, I sure. see many players, when they start, the, the big event is impact. And the follow-through, that whole concept, it has to come later. So I think in those ways and others that um, there's just nothing natural. Even if you played other ball sports, I'm not sure how natural tennis is with all the different skills that it requires. So what would your what is your message to your students then as you as you work with them on the students that you do have on on a regular basis maybe a few times a week or once a week or a couple times a month what is your message to them then as you help them develop their skills or maybe another way of of asking this um is how do you keep a student patient who is trying to learn these skills that aren't coming very easily or very quote unquote naturally yeah, another really good question, and probably um, the question of the ages for, for tennis pros, I would have to guess, I mean, for, for all of us. Um, I, I see this, and I'll get to your question a little bit more directly, but mm -hmm. I see this definitely play out a lot with junior players. I mean, if you take um, a junior player starting at tennis or starting at soccer, you can see the immediate um, appeal with something like soccer. You've got a large ball sitting on a flat surface that you can kick. <laughs> yeah. When nothing else is moving except you and your foot. And in tennis, you've got this implement that's now an extension of your body. You've got a ball coming at you with some kind of speed and angle and spin, and you have to make contact with that. And at first, um, it's just very difficult to even make contact. I mean, even with softer tennis balls and smaller courts and lower nets and all that, that part is still challenging. So, um, you know, that is a, is a barrier to sort of later proficiency um, for all levels and all ages. I mean, what you, what you definitely see with juniors is after a certain point, 
it starts to become fun in a way it wasn't fun before. I mean, you can do interesting games and do interesting drills with juniors, for instance, to keep things moving along while they're getting enough proficiency to make it good. But there's a point when they start making enough contact with the ball that the game is inherently fun because of how much joy they're getting from their ability to hit the ball. Um, I think with adults, it's, while not saying this is going to take you five years or 10 years or something to master, to be realistic and say, you know, what we're trying to do right now are these things. What the road ahead uh, looks like is this. And it's going to take us a little while to get there. You're going to notice progress. I'm not sure there are going to be any epiphanies, but what we're trying to do each lesson out here is move along the continuum from where you started to where we'd like you to end up. And it sometimes seems to go a lot faster. Sometimes it seems to go a little bit slower, but there's a lot of stuff going on here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start in a very controlled way where you're going to basically be in one place and I'm going to be in one place and I'm going to get the ball to you and you're going to hit the ball. And then we're going to eventually incorporate movement into that. And then eventually I'm going to be moving and we're going to be starting to look at strategies and that sort of thing. But that all is sort of a modular progression. And it's important that, they understand that, you know, despite what they've seen on TV and how easy it might look or <laughs> their friends have talked about it, that it, it does take some steps to get through there. Um, and again, I think not to dampen anybody's enthusiasm when you go out there by saying this, but to give them re- a realistic thought that, you know, it may be some amount of time, not years, but some amount of time <laughs> before you're feeling kind of proficient, but that's okay. That's how this goes. Absolutely. So it sounds like, and uh, obviously... Having looked through the book, I know that that you're a big proponent of finding that guiding voice and and finding somebody with experience and wisdom that that can give the right types of input at the right time to help a player develop. And so, what what do you feel are the the biggest things that our listeners should be looking for when they go to their local courts or their, their local club, their local facility, and they're trying to find the right person to help guide them down that path. What are a couple of elements that should be red flags that uh, should cause people to look elsewhere for, <laughs> for guidance? And what are a couple elements that people should be very strongly looking for that indicate a, a quality teaching professional? I think one of the main things is attentiveness of the teaching professional and if you will, in sort of new age language being present. Mm. Um, I think, you know, somebody who, when they're on the court with you, they are on the court with you. They're not checking their cell phone or talking to people on the other courts or looking like they wish they were doing something else, but they are right there with you and they're paying, they're paying attention to what you're doing. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is, and this is um, obviously something you can do pretty easily at a club, is watch the person you're considering maybe taking lessons from teach and see what kind of style they have and think about what kind of style works best for you. Do you like somebody, for instance, who is really demanding and maybe kind of gruff? Is Is that the way you would be motivated to learn? And that can be. Do you like somebody with a softer more kind of um, collegial, even conspiratorial approach, like we're in this together and you and I are a partnership. And so I think style, um, sort of the stylistic measure of that pro is, is a really important thing too. And then um, to see if 
that person seems like they would take your game and your physical abilities into account rather than having sort of a one-size-fits-all prescription for everybody who comes and takes lessons from. Mm. Because, um, Ian, as you know, I'm sure, you know, you get people who come to you with all sorts of different physical gifts and physical limitations. And so you have to be able to deal with who they are, not who you wish that student were. And I think that's a very important thing. Um, I know that... um, a lot of the best things in life of this kind of thing, when you're looking for a practitioner, do seem to be based on referrals. So it's always great if you know somebody who can recommend somebody to you who they've had a good experience with and get the reasons from them as to why this person is is that is the person you should go see. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit about the whole USPTA conven- um, credentialing process, and that's you know another measure of finding out if someone is you know, at minimum, at least, qualified to be a teaching pro. But again, as I say in the book, I have nothing against that process, but I wouldn't let that hold you up. If there's an instructor who you think you can learn from and other people have done well learning from, don't let the fact that they don't have a certain credential keep you from getting a good experience and a good learning experience from that person. Awesome. Good stuff. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, match play and, and mindsets and a little bit of strategy. First, okay. a phrase that I really enjoyed a lot, a concept that I, I thought was really insightful, was this whole idea of internal stroke tempo. Uh, what mm-hmm. What is that, and how can we find it? Yeah, um, that's a really big um, idea for me, and it's something that I talk to a lot of my students about. Um, I think that... One of the things that tends to um, derail matches sometimes is a player getting influenced by the type of hitting that they're facing. So if somebody's hitting a lot harder or a lot less hard than they're used to, they sort of begin to mimic those characteristics with their own strokes to the detriment of their own strokes. Mm. Because I think sometimes that's what happens. But I also think there are times where players haven't spent the time to figure out, okay, what is my my optimal hitting speed? And I give some suggestions in the book for ways to do that. I think, um, you know, here's a place where um, a teaching pro who is a good, steady player, which is obviously just about all of them, um, can really help. And my suggestion is to um, go out and rally with this person and push your pace in both directions, hit slower than you usually do, hit faster than you usually do and find out what's the way that I can hit with control, but with the most pace that I have where my strokes will still keep their integrity um, and get the ball in say three quarters of the time. And I think that it's hard to do that simply out of, out of the, in the context of match play, but it is something you can do, on the rally court or with a pro or with a very steady hitting partner. And, um, I'm a, I'm a believer that there is within all of us, and this may sound a little bit airy fairy or something, but I think that we all have a a perfect tempo. Mm. And I think if we don't try to be players that we're not really meant to be like hitting the serve way too hard or, um, pushing our strokes in ways that they don't need to be pushed, but are trying to be aggressive with our strokes, um, with some thought and some practice, we can find that tempo, and that's the tempo that's going to 
be the most helpful to us when we're trying to be consistent in matches because if we can get to that tempo and use it consistently and hit at that tempo, it's going to make us feel comfortable and confident and relaxed and probably more importantly, in control of our strokes and our game to the point where we won't get rattled by that person on the other side of the net or other conditions. It also, you know, tennis is, is such an interesting sport because when you're on the match court, you're not only the player, you're also the whole team. You're also the trainer. You're also the coach. You're also the line judge. You're also the scorekeeper. Hmm. You have all these different things that you have to process when you're out there in an unofficiated match I'm talking about. Um, And so it can be awfully easy to lose your moorings in your strokes while you're concentrating on all this other stuff that's happening around the periphery, which is vital to you winning or losing that match. And so my suggestion for finding this internal stroke rhythm, too, is it, it gives you kind of a grounding, kind of a center of being, if you will, in the tennis court to where you have something that if things start to go into this whirling kind of confusion, you've got a place you can go that feels safe and comfortable and predictable and sort of, sort of build your way out of your situation, whatever it might be, with that. And it's also a place to go if you begin to start getting a little wild or begin to get forced by circumstances to do stuff you shouldn't do. It's a place to go also just to simply get your technical game back on track. Awesome. So what's your, what's your biggest tip for, for people listening who maybe they, they do exactly what you suggest. They go out to the court, do some work to find a, a tempo and a rhythm that, that is very calm and, and smooth and controlled for them. But then they go out and they play that player, whether it's a much faster tempo or a much slower tempo than they're used to. And, and it's, they kind of feel that gravity of uh, the speed of the ball trying to pull them away from what they're comfortable with. What's, um, do you have any thoughts or like um, approaches to that scenario that can help players gravitate back towards the tempo that they're most comfortable with without getting influenced too much by their opponent? Yeah, I mean, yes. I think the first thing probably to say is I think it's inevitable that you're going to be influenced at some points in some matches by things that are going on the other side of the court. And probably the, the technique to employ is um, enough awareness in that match that you realize it's happening and do everything you can to bring it back. Mm. So I think, um, you know, as they say in a famous 12-step program, recognition is the first step. <laughs> so I think that just being aware enough of what you're doing on the court, which is also a tall order, I want to let people know that I'm, I'm not just, you know, I'm in the business of things that are super easy to say and a lot harder to execute. Absolutely. Um, and this would be one of those things to simultaneously be within your match and playing to the best of your ability and focused on that and present. And yet sometimes looking outside of it to see, wait a minute, the wheels are coming off the bus a little bit here. Um, so that kind of uh, sort of meta awareness, at least at some points, a little bit at some level is good. And I think my more general answer would be what I might call method acting, um, which for actors is if you need to, say, summon up tears for a scene, what you do is go back to some event in your life that made you cry, and you can use that method to bring up that emotion. Well, I know that I've had um, over the years a number of people who say, you know, sometimes when I'm out on the court and my serve isn't working, what I do is 
I think about, I'm just on the practice court with you. You've got the hopper balls and you're handing me a ball and I'm hitting the serve and I'm relaxed like that. And so I think um, a little bit of is what you might call even biofeedback or something, just taking yourself and sort of putting yourself in another place that's more relaxed that you remember from some other circumstance. And is you're still in the place you're in playing your match, but your mind is sort of helping you by tricking you a little bit to let you think that it's actually a sort of a different type of situation that you're in. And for the, uh, for the stroke tempo, I would say, you know, just go back and try to put yourself in the place of rallying with that teaching pro or that hitting partner and feeling that rhythm and how the ball feels on the racket and what the sensations are in your body. Probably for a lot of players, um, and this is going to get back to um, one of the first parts in, in Agassiz's uh, um, excellent book, Open. He talks about in the first three games of a match, he simply concentrated on breathing. Mm. He said, basically, of course I wanted my strokes to be good, but I just wanted to calm myself down. And I think for a lot of players, if every once in a while in a match, they just said, am I breathing? Or how <laughs> deeply am I breathing? Or am I relaxed? Or when you're about to serve, is my hand crushing the grip? Are my shoulders hiked up around my ears? There can be some nice little check-ins like that that are actual concrete, small, physical things that you can do to get yourself back on track. You, you know, and one of the other concepts that's come to me recently is that um, there's this saying, um, uh, practice like you play. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? Um, you want to put yourself in similarly tense or competitive situations sometimes when you practice so that when you get in the real situation that counts, that's not a completely foreign idea. Mm. But I'm wondering also if the reverse of that, um, that, uh, so, that expression is maybe not as valuable, which is play like you practice. So instead of trying to put yourself always in tension on the practice court to mimic playing, try to, when you're on the playing court, find the relaxation you have and ease you have on the practice court to help you find that rhythm. Awesome. Good stuff. Let's kind of stick with the theme of hitting the best and most effective shots possible during match play. And one of the concepts that you had in the book that I enjoyed quite a lot was the whole idea of hit the shot that you're hitting. Can you uh, explain Uh the the philosophy around that, please? Yeah. um, It, um, it kind of goes with, you know, a couple of expressions we probably all heard. Um, First things first, or, um, you know, one problem at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that um, one of the things that um, probably all teaching pros see is players who begin a sequence of shots or what should be a sequence of shots. And they're, let's say they've hit a serve. They're now engaged in a rally and there's a short ball that they're going to have to move up on. And maybe the next logical step is going to be to come forward to the net and do something, um, hit a volley or something from there. And so you can see them as they're coming up to try to hit that approach shot. They're already thinking about being up at the net and hitting that volley. And predictably, a lot of times that approach shot doesn't go in because they're not in the shot they're in. They're in the next shot that mm-hmm. they're going to do. Sure. And I think that, you know, energetically, just in our lives in general, it's probably a really healthy and helpful thing 
not to begin to project your energy into situations you're not in yet. It's not bad to obviously anticipate possibilities and look into consequences, but you're not only um, making it a little bit more difficult for yourself in present by not having all your focus there. You're sort of robbing some of the energy from what you're doing in that moment by projecting yourself into some other moment. So, and I, I think that on the tennis court, as much as it's dynamic and you have to react to situations and all sorts of variables at the same time, to the extent you can control things and make those moments your own and put them under your control, stay there, stay in that moment, just hit the shot you're hitting. Know that you're going to do something else, but when you're doing that one thing, just do that one thing. And I think um, for a lot of players, if you treat your practice sessions that way or practice matches that way, you'll find it's a, it's a really powerful thing to do just to try to even pose the end of what you're doing for just a second. Just hold it for just a second before you move on to give yourself an actual gap, an actual physical gap between what you're doing. I'm not saying move slowly on the court, of course, but I am saying give yourself some mental breaks between what you're doing so you're, you're creating discrete strokes and not just a sort of blur of a bunch of motion that's supposed to end up somewhere uh, when oftentimes that blur of motion isn't going to get you there successfully or get you there at all because you shorted all the steps along the way. Why do you, why do you think it is, Marcus, that we're we're so tempted by? It's almost like we're we're so impatient to get to the uh, the outcome of what this point is going to be that we we lose sight of all the critical elements that have to be executed with as much excellence as possible before we get to that point. What what is it about? Um, and I'm sure most sports, you know, are like this. But what what is it about mm-hmm. us? as humans, do you think, that we want so badly to get to the end before we actually take care of the, the steps in between? Well, um, that's going to be just a natural human tendency that we, we love to know the result of our actions. We love to know the outcome of things we do. And, and obviously, a tennis point is a fantastic microcosm of lots of larger kinds of situations that you'll encounter in your life. I mean, it may be three or five or 10 shots, you're going to have this whole universe of things play out. Mm -hmm. And so it's short enough that you're thinking, well, the end of this is coming pretty soon. I'm just fascinated (laughs) as to what happens. Um, I think, I think also um, to be maybe a little bit more psychological, sort of interpersonally psychological about it. um, You see this a lot um, when people get a lob and they're about to hit an overhead. There's this moment at which, when your body's turned away from your opponent and you're looking up and tracking this ball in the sky, you can feel awfully vulnerable. Mm. You can feel like, I wonder what they're doing on the other side that is working to my disadvantage while I'm waiting for this ball to fall. And so by the time it comes to hit that ball, your head's dropping because you're trying to check the other side of the net and you net the overhead instead of staying with it and hitting it. And I think that stroke probably better than almost anything else epitomizes the sort of nervousness in the, in the, uh, that's part of the interface between you and the opponent, because, you know, it's, it's probably obvious to everyone who plays competitive tennis that the energy coming from the other side of the net in a match is categorically different than the kind of energy you're getting from your teaching pro, I hope, <laughs> and <laughs> of a hitting partner who's trying to help you. I mean, the pro, again, I hope, is, is there as a partner in your enterprise that's trying to make you better. Mm-hmm. Just as your hitting partner, I hope, 
is trying to also help you that way. But hmm. in a match, the other person doesn't need to be snarling or nasty or, you know, calling bad lines. But there's a certain amount of energy coming at you from the other side of the net that is saying, I want to beat you. And so you get into a whole different kind of fight or flight situation sure. in competition that doesn't exist in the rest of tennis and doesn't exist in a lot of the rest of life. And fight or flight on any level, small or large, triggers all the same kinds of reactions. So I think a lot of times there's sort of fear and wariness and anxiety and uncertainty that if I take too long doing this thing on my side of the net, somehow this other person is going to get some advantage and they're already trying to get a lot of advantage of me. I can tell because I can feel their energy. And so the response to that is, a certain level of franticness and um, a, a lack of centeredness, if you will, on the task you're pursuing. And so probably one of the main ways to, to counter that, again, is, is to play more matches and to make that situation unnovel for yourself mm -hmm. so that you're used to somebody having that energy. And it's not like it's ever going to become neutral, but at a certain point it becomes accustomed at least. And sure. so you're able to say, you know what? Um, they can't do anything while the ball's over on my side of the net, or they can't do anything much. And so this is my time to hit the ball, and I'm just going to make the most of it, and I'm going to stay in my stroke. But again, I think for um, players without a great deal of match experience, and even for a lot of those with who haven't really taken the time to, to look at the situation and think this through, it becomes um, a blur of sort of franticness. So my, my suggestion would be just know that when – when it's your time, it's your time, and, and stay with the shot, make your shot, and then and move on after that. It'll work out a lot better. Yeah, really really well articulated, Marcus, the, the, that struggle, that tension between the, the discipline of wanting to stay with the shot and hit the best quality shot possible, but also being incredibly drawn towards wanting to know what the result is going to be or wanting to know what the opponent is doing to try to mess us up it's it's that kind of yeah. uh internal struggle that i think draws so many people to tennis because learning how to kind of dance with that tension and come out on top more hopefully more times than not is just one of those things that feels so sad uh satisfactory uh converting on it because because you kind of intuitively sense i think that that draw of wanting to do something you're not supposed to in that moment where you have that that easy sitter um so yeah really awesome yeah. stuff no i totally agree with you Ian. exactly all right um i've got two more kind of main themes here i'd love to get to before we we start wrapping up uh, this first okay. one I, i'm going to start with a, a quote from the book and that is tennis players and I agree with this completely, tennis players tend to practice skills they like and do... Uh, I'm sorry, that was a terrible reading. Tennis players tend to practice skills that they <laughs> like to do and ones that they do well already. Why, why do you think that is, that we're so prone to spend time on the practice court doing things that we enjoy doing and doing things we already do well? And what are some examples of those elements that players spend too much time on when they, when they practice and other elements that they should be spending more time on. Yeah. Well, and you and I, in, in some ways talked about this a little bit before the interview, but um, I think that probably um, a couple of the, the things that uh, many players, especially players 
who are advanced and have well-developed games get um, really deeply focused on are the forehand and the serve. Yeah. Now, of course, if, if you wanted to look at the cornerstones of anybody's tennis game, I think you have the forehand and the serve and the backhand. Of course, you need those things in order to play well. But um, so I think that, you know, humans, aside from loving to know the outcome of our actions, like to be comfortable, too. I think that there's a, a deep need for comfort and for the known. And so I think that I, I've seen this play out over the years. Um, there are very few students who have ever voluntarily wanted to work a lot on strokes. They didn't do that well. Sure. Or, <laughs> and sometimes they, there have been people who've said, I want to work on the strokes. I don't have it yet, but that's even pretty rare. What's a lot more common is, uh, yeah, my forehand's pretty good, but I think I can improve it in this way, or I can tinker more with it this way and make it a little bit different. And I think it's like um, polishing up something that's already good. You know it's already good, and you're thinking, this could even be better. I'm going to make myself happier. It's like sort of um, an endorphin rush or um, a dopamine kind of loop. You um, you get good feelings from doing it, and you get even better feelings from doing it better. And what you don't get as good feelings from is, say, working on backhand overheads, um, <laughs> because that's going to expose some parts of technique you've never worked on before, and sure. it's difficult, and it's awkward at first. And so I, I totally understand uh, the impulse of students to want to do these things. And again, if you're somebody who wants to go out and rally or look good on a resort court, um, which is, I'm not in any way putting that down, I think that's an admirable goal. Um, I think polishing up the few beautiful strokes you have is really good. Um, I think that for match progress, it's probably good to take a look at the strokes that are occurring in matches and to, even if you don't have somebody chart your match, to kind of at least anecdotally say, my forehand is working pretty well, my serve's going in, but, you know, I just, when I get a, a backhand volley um, at midcourt, I just cannot execute that stroke. And to spend some time working on that. Um, so I think that um, we, we like to do things that we already know how to do because it doesn't make us feel too uncomfortable doesn't expose us too much. And so, uh, again, taking the more 30,000-foot view of your game, if you can every once in a while step back from what you're doing and say, okay, if I'm really honest with myself, what could I do to make my, my game better? And what I will do now is I will discretionarily spend a certain amount of my time working on that. I'm not going to make that the whole lesson maybe, but maybe I'll just sort of ease my way into it, like in this my hour lesson next week, I'll spend 10 minutes on that midcourt backhand volley. And then maybe the next week I'll spend 15 and maybe 20 after that. And just so I'm just putting a, a few strokes in that account, building up some equity in that stroke. And then after a certain amount of time, it's going to become easier. And then you're going to want to do that more. But I think um, as with so many things that you might want to introduce into your tennis game, it's good to give yourself sort of a numerical goal, like a certain amount of minutes or a certain amount of reps per match. Um, like if you're trying to start serving and volleying, just as a, for example, um, or coming to the net more from the baseline, say the measure of my success on this is going to be if I do it five times in this match, I don't care if I succeed or if I fail necessarily my, I'm going to be successful if I do this five times. 
And I think that's a way to confront the uncomfortableness of some of these new skills and new ideas without just throwing yourself into shock. And I think I I make the um, analogy in the book to flossing. And uh, I heard this (laughs) some time ago on National Public Radio. Someone was talking about how to develop new habits. And this person said, if you want to start a flossing routine, don't floss all your teeth at once the first day. Floss one tooth. And then the next day, floss two teeth. And keep going until you've taken an easy habit and developed it into a slightly bigger habit that then becomes a really great habit that's really beneficial to you. And I would say something similar with tennis. Just try a few balls of something that you didn't do particularly well and do a few more the next time. And that's a way to get into it and to not make yourself totally uncomfortable, but to just push yourself a little bit to get better. Love it. Super practical, uh, actionable stuff. I'd love to touch on one more philosophy or principle here that for me personally was was definitely my favorite this is on page 142 of the book and definitely the the first time ever in a tennis book i've seen an author purposefully leave blank space on the pages (laughs) and it was not to fill out some kind of charts or or write notes or anything like that it was blank space for the for the purpose of blank space and preceding that were three words, and those three words were "take another moment." Can you can you please explain what that means and and give my listeners some some insight into why it's so important? Sure. Yes. Um, and um, I'm so glad that you like that part of the book too. Um, so um, it is it is interesting to me that. So many of my students, people I've worked with over the years, spend a lot of thought and a lot of time and to some degree a lot of money um, getting better at tennis. And then they go play a match. And as soon as that match is done, often will move on to whatever the next thing is in their life. And I'm thinking, you know, there's so much in our life um, that are things, so many things that we have to do. And often so few things that we want to do. And when you have one of those things that you want to do that you don't have to do, um, don't shortchange it. Let that moment um, after you do it, just sit there for a minute. So you finished your match. Just, and I often do this when I'm done with my week on the teaching court. When everybody's gone and I'm done, everything's packed up, I'll just stand on the court for a few minutes, just taking it in, taking in just how wonderful it is to be able to do this. What a, just a life-affirming, fantastic activity tennis is. And just to feel sort of the emotional and spiritual wonder and weight of that kind of thing. And what I would suggest to players is you're spending all this time and you're buying a book about it and watching videos and taking lessons and doing all these things. Don't sell yourself short. Let, let yourself bathe in that moment when you're done. There's, of course, other purposes to this, too. I think that it's a good time right after you play, after a little bit of that taking of the moment, to reflect on what you did, which isn't to, it, that is not equivalent to um, upbraid yourself for the things you didn't do right. Mm. Um, it is have an honest appraisal of what you did, um, have an honest appraisal of what you might work on to improve. But really more than all that, you know, we have 
whatever amount of time we have on this earth, and we have this wonderful activity that we are fortunate enough physically to be able to participate in. So don't let that go too easily. Um, it's part of your life. Really make it part of your life. Really, really live in that moment. And I think what I'm trying to say is sort of like the be in the shot you're being, be in the activity mm. you're in. Sure. Don't, don't move on so quickly. Uh, there's um, probably the last thing I'd say about that is unrelated and related. There's a Matthew McConaughey movie of some years ago uh, called Sahara, where he's an ex-Navy SEAL who becomes a treasure hunter for this lost ship in, in the desert. And at one point, he says, um, you know, I, I love the water. Every good thing that's happened to me has happened in the water. And um, I thought, that's, that's a fantastic concept. I think a lot about that with tennis. And I would say, for me, from a personal standpoint, most every good thing that's happened to me in great relationships and just a sense of physical well-being and um, mental strength have all come from the tennis court. And I think that there's, there's power out there that if you hook into it can really help you in other areas of your life. And so the take a moment thing also, I think encapsulates a lot of sort of a more, again, airy fairy spiritual view that I think is a really big part of the game and why we do it. I agree a hundred percent. I I'm completely on board with, with that sentiment. And I know the vast majority of my listeners are as well. And that's why they, they, listen to me ramble about tennis on a, on a weekly basis <laughs> is because tennis means so much more to them than, than just a game. And so I really love that, mm -hmm. that part of the, uh, the book and the, the deeper meaning behind just being on a tennis court, uh, something really important to me. So, so loved, loved reading that. Um, Mark, it's been a pleasure talking you. to you. Is there any part of the book that is maybe a favorite of yours or an element or a topic or a philosophy that you think is absolutely critical that we have not had the time to get to that you, you'd like to throw out there before we, we sign off? Wow. Um, I think that um, Ian, you did a fantastic job of, of taking us through what I'd written and um, sort of hitting the high conceptual points. I suppose the, the one last concept that I would throw out there, which again dovetails with some of the other things we talked about. There's a, there's a chapter in the book called Foshing Advice, and um, Foshing is this German celebration that I won't go into all the details of, but it's kind of like Mardi Gras. It's basically um, sort of a, a Bacchanalian revelry, um, a time to sort of get crazy and do something different. And for it's just out of mind. You can be a person, you're not the rest of the time, and it's okay. Society Okay, I'm going to give you a crazy week, and then you're back to being your regular self. I think that the idea for a lot of players of having a, a foshing session, a, a crazy session, um, every so often, like go out and just play in a way you wouldn't normally play. Like if you're a diehard baseliner, play serve and volley only. Or, um, you know, if you always hit flat serves, hit a bunch of spin serves. Just do something, or, or you're usually standing back from the baseline, stand inside the baseline when you're mm. playing. Do something to just give yourself a whack on the side of the head every once in a while, and you might find something that really helps your game that you never would have come on any other way. Or maybe even just tells you that what you're doing is right, and it was fun to do something else. But I think that every once in a while, just, just let yourself go a little bit and, and see if you can't make some improvement that way. Awesome. I love it. 
Uh, Marcus, thank you so much for your time today. Again, the book is Tennis Lessons, Filling the Gaps in Your Game. Marcus, can you please tell us where is the, the best place to check out and buy the book, which I highly recommend, by the way. Super informative, also very entertaining and easy to read, very engaging uh, writing style, Marcus. Where, where's the best place for people to check out the book and, and pick up a copy and also learn more about you and, and what you do? Great. Ian. First of all, um, thanks again for having me on today. This has been a, a really wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed it. And, and thanks for all the praise for the book, too. Um, the, the best and easiest place to get it is um, on Amazon. And just so um, the sort of odd spelling comes across um, on the air, the vowels are left out of tennis lessons. So the, the title is T-N-N-S-L-S-S-N-S. So tennis lessons without the vowels in it. Um, and again, Amazon is the best place to get a hardback, uh, excuse me, paperback or Kindle. And uh, the best place to find out anything about me is at MarcusCutsona.com, and it's M-A-R-C-U-S, and then the last name is C-O-O-T-S-O-N-A.com. And you can find out um, about my other books if you're interested. There is, as Ian mentioned, some tennis fiction in there and uh, also my thriller series. Um, but right now, Tennis Lessons is, is probably your major focus. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure people will check out the other titles as well. well. Marcus, thanks for your time today. Thank you for the the work and the dedication that you poured into this title and the other ones that you've created. Um, I, I always am really, really happy and, and pleased to speak with other people who enjoy the game enough that they've sacrificed their, their time and their sweat and their tears uh, into tennis-related media. So so thank you for the sacrifice you made there. I know people will enjoy this conversation and they'll enjoy the book when they pick it up as well. Great. Thanks again. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube where we are the number one resource in the world providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care and good luck with your tennis.